morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you may be, and welcome to 2 Minutes 59, Lake County, Illinois' favorite, if not perhaps only, Clash Inspired uh, podcast. My name is David Von Ebers, and I'm your host. We are on episode 21, and as I mentioned a couple of weeks back, it's Pride Month, and I think it would be an appropriate time to talk about the interplay between Pride and um, punk rock and the punk rock scene and the clash in particular but more broadly New York City punk, DC punk, punk all over the world, right? Um, It's a glorious, beautiful, but very hot Friday afternoon in the Chicago area as I record this and it happens to be the weekend of Chicago's Pride Parade so what better time than now to uh, delve into that topic. You know, I mentioned in the past that Joe Strummer himself, um, as he as his career evolved, as he evolved, sort of um, became very supportive of the community. But but in fact, uh, and by the community, of course, I mean the LGBTQIA community. Uh, but it goes back even further than that. And and you'll have to forgive my old age and oncoming um, dementia. But I don't recall if I had mentioned. Um, the song "The Right Profile" in the past. The song that this is a song off of the London Calling album. It is a song about Montgomery Clift, or inspired by Montgomery Clift, um, the actor who passed away in the mid 1960s after um, a hard life, drinking, drug abuse. Um, uh, he had been a very, very popular actor. Sometime in the 1950s, he got into a, a really terrible car crash and damaged his face quite a bit. So the title of the song in part comes from the fact that after surgery and so forth to try to repair his looks, um, he preferred to have, um, you know, to be seen from his right profile, which was less damaged, I guess, on the left side of his face. But in any event, um, the story of Monty Cliff is um, more than just that he lived this sort of fast life and drank a lot and was um, known as a as a partier. There's a um, there's a, a, a story about him in Vanity Fair that refers to, or talks about the the long suicide of Monty Cliff. Not he did not literally take his life, but he ended up dying as a result of having a heavy drinking and drug problem and it was a prolonged problem and so that phrase, the long suicide, um, is something that people have used to describe his uh, decline and demise. But more than that, um, you know, he, I think, I think the, the um, connection obviously to Pride Month, of, of course, is that Monty was Monty Cliff was gay, and um, you know this is in the 40s and 50s and 60s. It was not the easiest thing to be gay, and I would imagine that that contributed uh, somewhat to his, you know, his vices um, dealing with the stress of it. In fact, you know, interestingly enough, the story about his car accident goes that he was um, leaving a party at Elizabeth Taylor's house and and ran into a to a light pole or something like that and got ser- seriously injured. But, you know, um, Elizabeth Taylor, of course, was known to be 
one of the more uh, supportive people in Hollywood of the LGBTQIA community. And so you have to wonder whether in part his friendship with her um, had to do with her being a supportive person in, a, in challenging times. Um, I read up on the song um, by taking a look at that Martin Popoff book that I refer to frequently, The Right Profile. Um, the, the book is called The Clash, All the Albums, All the Songs. And I found it interesting in the, in the one-page uh, write-up about the song The Right Profile. Uh, Popoff seems to overlook the most significant thing about, um, about Monty Cliff, which of course is the fact that he was gay. Um, and he, he points out that Joe, and I had heard this before, that Joe was reading not one but two different um, biographies of Monty Cliff's life uh, when he wrote the song. And they t apparently, according to Martin's book, the two books that Joe was reading told kind of different stories um, about Mon Montgomery Cliff. So the term, or the title rather, the right profile, I guess, uh, refers in part to this thing about him not wanting to be shown from the left after his accent, but also, you know, which one of these two books revealed the right profile of Monty Cliff. But in any event, what I find interesting about the song itself is I always felt, you know, that that it was written from a sort of an empathetic point of view, that although um, there's no explicit reference in the song to the fact that Monty was gay, I, I feel like Joe, being a pretty empathetic person, being the empathetic person that he was, um, you know, although he's talking about the sort of more salacious aspects of the guy's life, you know, there's a line in there a famous line in the song, Nembutal numbs it all, but I prefer alcohol. Um, it, you know, spoken in the voice of, of Montgomery Cliff, but I think of, I've always thought of the song as being a more empathetic song about how, you know, it must have been a difficult life to, to be this leading man in Hollywood, kind of a sex symbol, but also to, in fact, be gay, much like, you know, someone like Rock Hudson. Um, and, and at the time, having to keep that under wraps. You know, I suppose um, from a 21st century perspective, you could look at a song like that and criticize it somewhat and say, you know, because the song focuses on the salacious details of, of Clift's life, that, you know, that's kind of how even empathetic people viewed the community back then. They viewed gay people and the broader community as, you know, tragic figures and people who lived these challenging, difficult lives, and so forth. But, you know, again, he's writing the song in 1978 or thereabouts at a time when I think people who are allies to the community probably focus more on the mistreatment of gay people and how challenging life was for gay people than, you know, than so much, you know, celebrating the accomplishments of gay people. Now, you fast forward into the late 1990s, when Joe wrote a song called Diggin' the New, which is about just, you know, becoming a more accepting, open-minded person as you get older and not always assuming that you have all the answers. And in that song, you know, he's, he's kind of conveying a different, more positive uh, view of the community. <clears throat> he clearly is referring to trans people um, when he writes that song. Um, and, and he's, you know... It's not 
oh, isn't it a sad, tragic life they lead? He's like, hey, I'm digging the new. I'm learning new things about this community. And he's more or less celebrating it and celebrating the idea of growing in your understanding of different people from different backgrounds and so forth. So the kind of the evolution that Joe Strummer went through from 1978 to roughly 20 years later, from writing the right stuff to writing the lyrics to um, digging the new, you know, it shows a definite positive um, uh, evolution. And by the way, I'm not saying that when he wrote the right stuff, he was homophobic. I'm saying people who empathized and sympathized with the gay community were probably more focused in 1978 on the difficulties that gay people faced and the mistreatment that they faced and so forth. Whereas 20 years later, you, it was more about celebrating the community and, and uplifting the community that way. And I think, I think he shows that evolution. Um, but I, I also think, you know, there's something, there's a broader theme here, and it's not really limited to a couple of songs that maybe specifically address gay and trans people or, or those issues. I think it really relates more broadly to, you know, how people who felt like outsiders in one way or another were sort of drawn to punk from the very beginning. There's a couple of articles, and I'll, and I'll link to them in the show notes, a couple of stories that I came across. One was um, uh, from NPR back in 2020, June of 2020, and um, there, it, was a, it was a piece broadcast on, on NPR, but there's also a write-up. Uh, the piece is called Queer as Punk, A Guide to LGBTQIA Plus Punk, written by, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Jaina Brown and Tavia Nyong'o, um, who were both um, big fans of punk rock, both happened to be black, as it turns out, and they talk about that in the, in the piece, um, although it focuses more on LGBTQIA plus folks who were attracted to the punk scene, who played punk music, and so forth, and we'll talk about some of that in a little bit more detail, um, but it's interesting that they uh, they come to this not just from the perspective of, of queer people, but also from the perspective of black people. And we talked, I talked a bit about black punk um, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the other is an article from just last year, 2022, uh, from the Dallas Observer. And let me scroll up to the top of the article, get the correct name, and give proper attribution. Uh, it's an article by a gentleman named Mark E. Moon, and it says, it's called, titled, I should say, Check Out These Ten Queer Punk Bands, and there's some interesting information in there. Before I get to the specifics, though, just this, on this general theme of, of punk attracting, um, you know, a wide variety of people who felt like outsiders and then included queer people, I saw, um, I don't know, it was a month or so ago, it was an interview with Melissa McCarthy, the actor, actress, although I, as I understand it, actress is not the preferred term anymore, so we'll say actor. The actor who, you know, is, is from Illinois and who's been in all kinds of comedies, had a very successful career. She's still very popular. She's from Plainfield, Illinois, which is a small town kind of southwest of, of Chicago, but not really in the immediate Chicago suburbs and she's maybe 10 years younger than than me thereabouts 
but you know was old enough to um, have kind of experienced the first wave of punk rock as as a young person like I was and she told the story about how you know in the 1980s she came to Chicago uh, to the city not to the burbs like me but to the city spent a lot of time in the city and and one of the things that she did was she went to some of the legendary punk clubs back then Neo and Club 950 and Smart Bar and places like that where there was this really sort of um, big diverse punk crowd that was attracted to these these clubs in Chicago in the 1980s and she talked about how you know she kind of like discovered herself in this she discovered her people kind of you know she'd been in uh, she'd done acting in, in high school and whatnot but then she came to Chicago and in this punk scene found you know people of all these different backgrounds and felt really really comfortable and it and it just reminded me of being you know a young person first encountering that kind of music and finding this music that kind of gave a lot of us the space to just be you know it gave us a space and a time to not really have to say this is what I am you know we a lot of us knew that we were different from everybody else right um, I, I had tons of friends uh, big family good good relationships with other people always felt like an outsider just the same right I didn't know who I was I didn't know what I was but there was this place to go and this place to go was just you know uh, the scene was just was just um, welcoming and non-judgmental and all you knew when you went to a club I didn't go I did not go to club 950 but I would go with friends to neo which is on which was on um, Clark Street not too far from Wrigley Field in Chicago I want to say 2350 North Clark for some reason that address sticks out in my mind but we would go there and um, one of my friends who like to go happens uh, to be gay. Not that that's really the point, but the fact is, is that it was an it was an environment where you didn't have to worry about who you were. You didn't even have to worry about whether or not you knew who you were. <laughs> you could just be. Um, and I feel like that's always been a part of punk rock. Is just this kind of openness. Now, I, I should say. And, and this is definitely true. In the NPR piece in particular uh, that I mentioned, um, the authors uh, talk about, I don't know, authors, they, they also, uh, uh, I guess you could say authors. I mean, it was a piece on the radio, but then they wrote it up on the website. Anyway, the authors, you know, talk about how the fact that the punk scene in some ways was more progressive and accepting than other music scenes and other, um, you know, public places where you could go but on the other hand you know there were there were racist skinheads that was one part of punk um, there were you know people who were very very hung up on sort of hetero heteronormative views of the world and and you know used homophobic language and songs and so forth but there always was sort of a queer element so it wasn't perfect just like as these authors talk about you know being being black in the punk scene was not always super comfortable. It, being queer in the punk scene was not necessarily always super uh, comfortable. So I don't want to I don't want to paint this picture like it was always perfect. But 
but you know the point of of punk rock was always to be an outsider one of the things and just as an interesting aside in the npr piece one of the things that they point out was that the term punk is actually you know has has in and of itself a queer history and i'm just going to read from the article briefly um, they say the term punk, by the way, has a long queer history, predating its use in contemporary music. A punk has always meant a person up to something disreputable and socially deviant. In Shakespeare's English, it meant a female prostitute. Later, it connoted young men who sold sex to older men. Punk and queer are a match made in the gutter. Now, bear in mind that these two individuals are queer themselves, and so they're not using this in a derogatory or a slur way. But they go on to say, punk rock embraces this abject status. It celebrates and rejects the society that rejects it. No, I'm sorry. It celebrates it and rejects the society that rejects it. It's all about bad behavior, anarchy, antisociality, and noise. It's about claiming a freedom from dulling and hypocritical normative pressures. In other words, punk is queer. Um, so I, I sort of butchered that while reading it, but I think it's it's really um, on point. And this article and the one from the Dallas Observer go on, and you know they they mention a number of specific acts and specific bands. They mention, as as I did in an earlier show during Women's History Month, they mentioned the Slits, and they mentioned specifically the song "Typical Girls," which <laughs> was one of my uh, one of my um, uh, recommendations in terms of uh, women in punk. Um, they also uh, they also um, uh, refer to the Ramon song "Fifty Third and Third. Now this, I guess I didn't ever listen to it that carefully, so it didn't occur to me that this was the subject of the song. But it's about hustling in in a, an area of Manhattan in the area of Fifty Third and Third, and the article says, interestingly enough, it was written by Ramon's bassist, Dee Dee Ramon, allegedly from life experience. So that's that's pretty interesting. Um, but they go on and talk about some other acts. Jane Country, um, who was a trans performer. Um, as they say, she was the most visible and audible transgender performers in New York punk back in the, you know, in the 70s and 80s. Um, of course, you know, not per, not exactly on point, but they mention the B-52s uh, very clearly, uh, you know, a queer and queer supportive band and always have been. Um, it's funny that they mention them and they put them under the, under the heading of rock because their music was so innovative and it's so sort of all over the place. But I have to tell you, you know, the, the first time I saw them on Saturday Night Live back in, I don't know, 1979 or whatever it was, I guess I probably would have called them punk too, you know, because it was, it was just such a different sound. I don't know how I would have labeled it. Um, but you know, of course, they they were a very, very um, you know, very pro LGBTQI, and the surviving members, of course, still are. And there was a, a a song. You'll have to you'll have to take my word for this, or go and listen to it and decide if you if you come to the same conclusion. But there's a B52 song on one of the albums that came out in the '80s. It wasn't their debut record. Um, they were already fairly well established by this point. I can't off the top of my head remember. Uh, the record, but I'll look it up and put it in the show notes. But anyway, this song is called Dirty Back Roads. 
And I recall, you know, sitting around with my college roommates, uh, you know, who were who were an open-minded group of people. They were they're not by any means. Um, uh, they they were certainly progressive for the times, let's say. Uh, but but I remember after listening to that song a few times, I said, you know, I think that song is about gay sex. <laughs> and they're like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? It can't be. And I'm like, well. The lyrics have, you know, phrases like reckless driving on dirty back roads and something about with your feet up in the air. I don't know. They refuse to believe it. And I still don't know if that's true, but I thought it was pretty funny at the time. But in any event, putting that aside, of course, they were very and always have been very pro-LGBTQ. You know, of course, one of the, I, I skipped over it, but one of the, um, one of the, you know, most famous uh, punk rock bands of all time, and their, and the Dallas Observer article points this out too, is the, you know, the Buzzcocks from the UK. I mean, they were explicitly, uh, well, they were explicit, <laughs> let's put it that way. They were always explicit. Um, the, uh, the first single they released in the United States, uh, the first single they released, I should say, it was on United Artists Records, I almost said the United States, but the first single they released was called Orgasmatic. So, you, you know, you get a sense of, uh, <laughs> you get a sense of where they're coming from. Um, a couple of artists that don't get uh, mentioned in these, these two articles, uh, and I want to, I just want to mention them both is one I guess you would say is more pre-punk or proto-punk um, but that's um, uh, Tom Robinson Tom Robinson of course had the band TRB um, and you know he was <laughs> notably um, uh, explicitly uh, pro-LGBTQ he had a very famous song called Sing If You're Proud to Be Gay. And that was a song, as I understand it, and I'm going to look this up. Now, I'm looking at, um, I'm looking at um, Wikipedia, so you'll pardon me um, if, if it's not the most reliable source of, of information. But, um, you know, at the time that, that he was uh, really kind of his career was taking off, you know, there was a, a concerted effort in the, in the UK to to prevent um, gay people from teaching and things like this, and so the the song was really a, a pushback on on that. Um, he also had a, um, a more political, but his you know his, the band that really kind of made it for him and 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 um, made him successful was the band TRB or the Tom Robinson Band. But he also had this band called Section 27 that was more of a, a political band, and, and I believe that was a reference to the British law that they referred to as Section 28, if I'm not mistaken, that was you know to uh, designed to really um, undermine LGBTQ plus rights. Um, the other artist I want to mention in that uh, connection is is Joan Jett, whom I've mentioned before, and you know. And this this relates to a different um, aspect of this whole issue, but I think it's important to point out. You know, throughout her career, people have always sort of speculated that that she was gay, and they, you know, people in interviews have asked her directly about her orientation. She's always sort of refused um, to uh, 
to talk about it and answer the questions. Not because I think there's any sense of embarrassment about it, but because I think she feels like it's, you know, it's nobody's business. It relates to her private life. And in one interview, she said, I've made it pretty clear in my music, um, which I suppose, you know, is an, uh, an, an indication that she may be uh, gay or, or bi, but, but who cares? I mean, the point is, is that it's really up to her to say it's her decision, and I totally respect the fact that she's like, nope, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go into that. And I think you know, that sort of just shows the complexity of this whole set of issues, right? Is like, like um, a lot of people want to be, you know, want to be out and want to be, you know, vocal and and say this is who I am, and that's fantastic. I love it. I support it. I'm with you 100%. But not everybody necessarily feels that way, and, and you don't have to be. I mean, you know, it's, it's one thing if we're talking about, let's say, a politician who might be in a part of the community but hides that fact and then votes for laws that are harmful to, to the community. I'm not talking about that scenario. That person is being a hypocrite. Um, and they're, you know, perhaps self-loathing, and they're and they're causing real genuine harm. I'm talking about somebody who's not doing any of that, who, like Joan Jett, has always been super supportive of the community, but this is a private matter, and she just doesn't want to talk about it in interviews because she doesn't want to be judged according to that. She doesn't want that to be the focus of, um, of 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 what you know pe- people uh, think about and talk about when they when her name comes up she wants to be judged on her music which is totally cool and her music is awesome by the way um, so I get that and I think there's always sort of this tension between you know it's totally cool to be out and proud and loud and and to say your piece it's also cool as long as you're not working to harm the community it's also totally cool to say you know what it's just not relevant for for this purpose and I'm not going to talk about it um, so uh, good on her uh, for, for doing that um, but in any event uh, I just I, I just want to circle back to that um, point about you know punk rock providing a space and a time for people to be who they are whether or not they want to be out and proud or they want to keep it to themselves or for that matter they just don't know yet who they are to provide that time and that room and that breathing space for the for people in the community um, is just outstanding it's you know it's always been really important and I think that's one of the reasons why this music has always resonated with me and continues to resonate with me because it is the song for outsiders it is the music for outsiders um, it's the it's the a place for outsiders. You know the Ramones, of course. The reason why I said it's the song for outsiders, aside from the fact that I'm obviously becoming uh, prematurely senile, but the reason why I said that is because what I was thinking of <laughs> at the time was the Ramones song "Outsider" uh, from the Subterranean Jungle album, which is a great album and a great song. And you know, I mean that it just sort of like it just sort of like it it um, it crystallizes that sense of who the music is there for and who it should appeal to. Um, and so you know, and, and when you think about the Ramones, uh, and I gotta I gotta think through how I'm gonna say this, but when you think about the Ramones, you know, they've 
always talked about people who were different and people who were outsiders. You know, songs like Beat on the Brat. And uh, one of the things that, that the Ramones uh, wrote lyrics about, you know, uh, very sort of openly was mental illness and treatment for mental illness and things like that. Now, I'm, I'm not sure that I would share their views about it um, because I think that some of what they were expressing was a bit like cynicism about how in their day people treated mental illness and, you know, you were usually sort of locked away and this and that and the other thing. And that was, that was true at the time and that was bad, but I don't mean to imply there's anything negative about modern treatment for mental illness, um, which I, I think is actually pretty great in a lot of ways. But, you know, when they were talking about, <laughs> there's a line in one of their songs about, oh, this is so terrible, a line in one of their songs about she had Thorazine in her farina. You know, the, the talking about how, you know, basically you would just take people who were mentally ill and drug them up and put them away. Um, but, but they were, again, but they were expressing empathy for people who are outsiders. And, um, you know, not to draw a parallel or too much of a comparison to the queer community and people who suffer from mental illness because you never want to create the impression that you're saying being queer is a form of mental illness. Clearly it is not. I don't mean that. But the treatment... Um, you know, that mentally ill people got back in the day being, again, sort of being locked away, the treatment that gay people uh, suffered being forced in the closet. You know, there's a real parallel there in terms of the life experiences and how the outside world viewed them. And I certainly hope we're way beyond that now. But that, that was a little bit of a, uh, an odd digression. Um, but in any event, the just, you know, the idea of punk rock providing this um, I don't want to use the term safe space because it, that's a term that, you know, is so badly mis misused these days. But it, well, it did provide for many, many of us growing up, you know, confused and conflicted and feeling like we didn't fit in. It did provide a place to just be loud and, and, and uh, you know, express ourselves and express our feelings and, and uh, just be ourselves. So I, I've always appreciated it for that. Um, hope you, if you are in the community, hope you've had a, a great month, and I hope um, people in and outside of the community spend, um, you know, the next 11 months and beyond uh, being compassionate and supportive and embracing everybody across the spectrum of gender and sexual orientation and identity, um, and, you know, um, happy Pride. I guess I'll leave it at that. Happy Pride Month. I hope to see you or, or talk to you again next week and uh, leave any comments um, that you can think of in the comment section below.